Yeah. A regular attender of a particular church brought a friend with him on Easter Sunday. And the friend was in front of him coming out of the church at the little receiving line. You know, it was kind of a, the preacher stood at the, the door like, like Larry does here and, and shaking hands. And so the friend was in front of him. And when he got to the preacher, the, the preacher grabbed the young man by the hand. And he's kind of an old school preacher. And he said, son, you need to join the army of the Lord. And the guy's friend looked at the preacher and he said, well, pastor, I'm already in the army of the Lord. Pastor looked back at him and he said, well, how come I don't see you except at Christmas and Easter? He kind of leaned over and he said, I'm in the secret service. So whether you're here every Sunday, whether you're visiting maybe in from out of town or whether maybe you're a part of the secret service, we're glad that you chose to be with us today. And when it comes to to these kinds of holidays, when it comes to Christian holidays, when it comes to celebratory moments, it doesn't get much more important for us than Easter. I mean, we make a big deal about the birth of Jesus. We celebrate Christmas pretty well. But Easter, Resurrection Sunday, this event, a really series of events, is the central most important thing to what we who follow Jesus believe about what God did for us through Jesus and what that means for our lives and especially for our eternity. This this is the biggie. I mean, we say that a significant portion of what we believe can be summed up in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and it really can. And all your scriptures in your insert in your bulletin, they'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along. This is this in John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. And if that sums it up pretty well, this that we celebrate today and really should be celebrating every day, is how God loved the world. It's the ultimate moment of God giving His one and only Son. It's the moment where it became possible for us to not perish, but have eternal life. This that we celebrate today is Jesus saving us by taking our sins to the cross and rising from the grave. But to phrase it with beautiful simplicity, what we celebrate today is God making it so that we don't get what we deserve. That sums it up pretty well. Have you ever not gotten what you deserve? The the truth is we often think about that idea uh, kind of from the angle of uh, an award that we believed we deserved but we didn't receive, or a promotion that we think we've deserved, or maybe even think we've earned, but then we don't get it. Um, I played baseball growing up, and I'll be honest with you, I wasn't very good, but I also wasn't very bad. I was very, very mediocre. Um, come watch church softball, you'll see what that looks like. Uh, just me, not everybody else, they're all good. And so what that meant was that once I was old enough that there were all-star teams, there was never any guarantee based on my play that I was going to make the team, but there was also never any guarantee that I wasn't. There was always kind of a, maybe this is the year I finally make all-stars. So I'd always have a little bit of hope. But one particular year, I played extra hard. Um, and I played in a position for once that it was, it was undeniable that I was doing a pretty good job. You see, typically in, in Little League age baseball, what they do with the mediocre players is they stick them in the outfield, except I have terrible depth perception. So I've, I've always struggled with judging fly balls. And, and so they'd stick me out there, and of course I was mediocre. I couldn't see the ball. And so they moved me into third base this particular year for no reason, and I had a good season, and I, I felt good. I actually played a few different positions. I'd kind of shift out depending on who was pitching. I kind of became this utility player, and I really thought, man, I'm, I'm going to make all-stars this year. 
And the coaches made the decisions. The coaches got to decide, and so my head coach had the biggest say um, over whether or not I made All-Stars. And, and he, um, his son was on the team, and his son and I weren't really good friends. We didn't get along very well at all, and so the coach was not a big fan of mine. And he decided uh, that he was going to make the call that I wasn't going to make the All-Star team. And I actually found that out. I wasn't supposed to find that out. I found that out, and I believed that I deserved it, and, and it broke my heart. Now, two amazing assistant coaches stepped up and made it happen. They forced their way through and put me on the all-star team. But, but even believing that, that somebody was going to take something away that I felt like I deserved was hurtful. In that case, it worked out, but it doesn't always work out that way. But the truth is, when it comes to, to not getting what we deserve, there, there is a flip side to this. Sometimes we deserve something bad. Sometimes we deserve pain or punishment for what we've done or a decision we've made, but we don't get what we deserve. That's a different side of this. Many of you have heard my ladder stories. Long story short, I shouldn't be allowed on ladders anymore. Um, but while on a two-man roofing crew, the summer before my uh, freshman year of college, making a little extra money, uh, we were roofing a nine-foot roof off an eight-foot stepladder, I know, um, which means we were stepping off the top, which if you've used a stepladder, it specifically says, do not step on the top two steps. Um, but we were doing that, so I was carrying a pack of shingles on my shoulder up onto this roof, I stepped up, I wasn't centered on the ladder, ladder goes, I go, I deserved to be injured. I probably deserved to be injured pretty badly. Um, I could have gone through the deck below me, I could have somehow landed on the ladder, I could have landed on the glass patio table behind me, I could have landed on the metal air compressor on the other side of me. A lot of things could have happened, I was fine. I deserved pain or punishment. I made a dumb mistake. We were not smart to be doing it that way. My carelessness should have resulted in injury. And I remember in that moment not getting what I deserved, being very thankful. Because when we deserve something bad, like pain or punishment, and we don't get what we deserve, it's both a blessing and a relief. But it's what, if, it's what we do after that. It's what we do in response to the relief and what we do in response to the blessing that I think matters most. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different stories from Scripture about people who deserve something bad, but because of the goodness and grace of Jesus, they didn't get what they deserved. And today we're going to go right on past punishment and pain and talk about someone who deserved death, but because of the grace of Jesus, did not get what he deserved. In fact, Jesus gave him life. And I want to just, just share this, stop for a moment here. We are going to talk about the crucifixion this morning, and I know we have some kids in the sanctuary this morning. We are going to talk a little bit about the crucifixion. We are not going to go in depth. We're not going to go graphic, but we are going to talk about the crucifixion. So I just wanted to, to let parents know that um, before we got too deep. Now, in order to approach our story properly this morning, we need to lay down an important foundation first. And so very quickly here, I need you to raise your hand if you're a sinner. Thank you. Very easy. Um, we did this two weeks ago. I think we'll just make a habit of this. It'll be a good way to keep ourselves humble. We'll just have to admit. Maybe we'll choose different sins each week. I don't know. I'm just kidding. So we're all sinners. That is important for us to acknowledge as we approach this message. I mean, listen to what James said in James chapter 2, verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. It's important that we understand that all unforgiven sin separates us from God, no matter what it is. Now, there are definitely different earthly consequences for sin. We spoke about that several weeks ago. But all unforgiven sin continues to separate us from God. And since we all raised our hands, that means we're all sinners. And if you didn't raise your hand, you lied. Therefore, sinner. 
And if we're all sinners, therefore, that means that we're all guilty. Which makes Romans 6.23 particularly important to understand. It says this, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need to understand that we're all sinners. Therefore, we're all guilty. Therefore, we all deserve death. But God made it possible for us to not get what we deserve. It's important that we understand that so that we don't see ourselves quite so far removed from the characters in the story we're going to study today. Because the story from Scripture we'll look at today is a story about two thieves, two criminals. And the immediate temptation is to say, well, those were bad guys. They obviously did something wrong. They obviously did something to deserve to be hung on a cross, and I'm clearly not that bad. And what we do then is we create this distance between us and them. But remember, we're all sinners. So don't, don't remove yourselves too far from these criminals as we look at our story. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, that's where our story kind of starts today. It says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, him being Jesus Christ. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Now before we get too far into our story, just for a moment, we need to talk about this whole crucifixion thing. This was one of the many ways to to execute a person in the time. But the truth is, it was both the most expensive because it took the most time and the most manpower to carry out, but it was also the preferred method. It was worth it to the Romans because it, it was the most painful and the most public and the most humiliating way to execute a person as well. So it was worth the cost. And so as you can imagine, the Roman leaders used this mode of execution in situations in which they wanted to really make someone pay for what they had done, or when they wanted to make a statement, or both. Or both. Which should probably tell us something about the men who were crucified with Jesus. We don't know exactly what they did to deserve to be there. We don't know a lot about them. But we do probably have the right here to make the assumption that it was significant since crucifixion was the chosen process for execution for them alongside Jesus. Now, I've heard countless professors and preachers and teachers and any number of people over the years try to uh, explain and describe the crucifixion and death. They try to explain the pain. They try to explain what Jesus probably looked like once he was on the cross. Uh, They've tried to explain it from a medical perspective, and and I I don't want to do that this morning. I will tell you if that's something that interests you in understanding that better, there is a fantastic book it's called The Physical Death and Resurrection, A Surgeon's View, and that, that's in your bulletin as well. Um, and it's by a, a heart surgeon who practices in Ohio. He actually did my father-in-law's open heart surgery. Um, if that interests you, fantastic resource. But here's what I believe about the crucifixion of Jesus. It was probably worse than we can understand. Worse than we can imagine. Scripture does a pretty good job of describing what happens to Jesus, and, and, and I, I, I'm not sure we can understand the depth of pain and destruction that happened physically. If you read a resource like this book, it, it's fascinating and heartbreaking at the same time because it was horrifying. So we can make assumptions based on the information we have, but, but again, it was most likely worse than our imaginations could, could come up with. Now, beyond the physical side, the public side of this was horrifying as well. People came out to watch crucifixions. If being, you know, beaten and hung on a cross wasn't bad enough to have people watching, to have people even hurling insults at you throughout the process, it wasn't going to make it any better. Luke chapter 25, 
verse 35 and following, the, the crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Now this is probably, probably a pretty accurate definition of adding insult to injury. People came out to watch and mob mentality is a, is a real thing and it has a way of taking over. But, but what may have been unexpected was for one of the criminals to join in the mocking. And for the other to then defend Jesus. These guys are literally in the midst of dying. And yet they have a conversation. From a medical perspective, it's actually breathing that becomes the most difficult to do in this kind of a situation. You know, suffocation is inevitable. So if a full breath is getting harder and harder to, to get in, what would you not want to do? Talk. And yet here's this conversation recorded in Luke's account of the crucifixion, verses 39 and following. It says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. You're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God, even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Now here's what I believe. I believe that all of us, if we're honest about it, can find ourselves to be similar to one criminal or the other. Based only on what we know about them, which again, isn't very much. It's these brief words they've spoken and the fact that they're being executed and there had to be a reason for that. I believe that we can decide which one we're more like. You and I were either more like the first or more like the second. And I already know which one we'd be hoping for. But let's look at each of them a little bit more closely. The first one, he's hanging there, himself being executed, and he joins the crowd in mocking Jesus. And based on what he said, he's the seer of the Messiah, or you prove it by saving yourself and us, we can assume on a certain level that this guy is arrogant and that his arrogance hasn't left him even as he's being executed. He's prideful even on the cross. He doesn't seem to fear God at all. And in this intense moment, he decides to be a smart aleck. But at the same time, it's almost like he's saying, and just in case you really can take yourself down on this cross, just in case you can save yourself, you might as well save us too. I mean, if you're going to go to all that trouble, save us too. It's like, I don't believe it, but just in case I'm wrong, if you do, take me with you. The truth is, a lot of people approach God in a similar way to that. A lot of people acknowledge the possibility or even the likelihood of a heaven and a hell. And so they approach God with a checklist mentality. I'll do what I have to do to get to heaven and stay out of hell, but if he asks me for anything in return, I'm out. It's a little bit of an entitled mindset. And this criminal, you know, what he's doing here is he's not recognizing any amount of guilt in himself. He probably on some level already realizes that Jesus shouldn't be up here with them, and yet he figures if Jesus saves himself, he should be saved too, even though he does know exactly why he's up there in the first place. If you ask me to describe this criminal in one word, I'd have to go to the word unrepentant. He's not owning what he did. He's not owning his own sinfulness. He's not willing to admit that he deserves to be here. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't think he needs to. But the second criminal has a different perspective. Again, 
in verse 40 and 41, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. You know, sometimes I think if Jesus walked this earth today, he would want to say to people, don't you fear God? It's this way of saying, do you have any idea what you're saying right now? And this guy immediately sets himself apart from the other criminal by saying, we deserve to die for our crimes. He owns his sins. It's like he says to the other guy, you're talking to this guy like we're all the same. You and I, we are the same. But this guy has no business hanging on this cross between us. I had to describe this criminal in one word. I'd put him on the other side. I'd call him repentant. Because in this moment, he is guilty. He knows he's guilty. He knows that he's getting what he deserves. He knows what he did to get what he deserves. And in that, he's broken. And even humble. He recognizes that he's done wrong. And even though he's not perfect, he at least shows some fear of God. And so while the first guy was unrepentant, he truly did seem to be repentant. He knows that he needs mercy. He knows that he needs help. He knows that he's helpless in the moment. And listen to the next statement that he makes in verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Again, he knows he needs mercy. And he clearly believes that Jesus was who he said he was. And that he could be the one to show him that mercy. And he cries out to Jesus in that moment. We need to understand why that's important. Because today we lack humility. Humility is often seen as weakness. So if you're humble, you must not care that much. Or you're ripe to be walked on or to be pushed around. Humility won't get you anywhere from the world's standpoint. And unfortunately, what comes along with a lack of humility is that lack of repentance, like the first criminal had. And I keep saying those two words, repentant and unrepentant, and I know those are church words, and they're words found in the Bible that we don't hardly use outside of that context. But by by definition, repenting means to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. But in order to turn from sin, we have to admit that we mess up, that we have sin, which requires a certain amount of humility. And so if we struggle with humility, we're going to struggle to repent. We're going to struggle to own our own sins because we won't acknowledge it. We won't acknowledge our sin. And if we won't do that, we won't know how much we need mercy. And if that's us, if we struggle with that, we're an awful lot like the first criminal. He was right next to Jesus. He was right there. And he could not get out of his own way enough to even admit that he himself might belong on that cross. And in a moment where he could have asked Jesus for mercy, he chooses to mock him instead. And so many of us have had those moments where Jesus is right there. Well, we're so close and we can't get out of our own way enough to even admit that we might in fact need Him. That we can't actually do it on our own. That we need mercy and we need a Savior. And we ignore the fact that Jesus is right there. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have ever been pulled over for any reason? I didn't say like today. It's not something you... I appreciate your humility. I have once been pulled over. Is there a more disheartening sight than the cop pulling out and the lights coming on? And you're you're trying to, in your head, you're going, well, somebody else is going faster. Maybe he's going after that guy. You you know, right? 
So I heard a pastor tell this story, and I don't know that a story could better illustrate what we're talking about here, so I want to read his words. I want to tell his story from his, his perspective. He said, I got pulled over one time for having an expired license tag, and I had to go to traffic court. Any of you been to traffic court? I had That I didn't have to do. He said, I, I came in, and there were all these people in there, and I was really nervous because there were a few people who recognized me. I could see them whispering, there's, there's our pastor, this, this is going to be good, we're here on the right day. He says, I went to the back row, I'm trying to lay low. The judge was an intimidating guy calling people up front and saying, tell me your story. Person after person came up fighting for their innocence, saying, it's not my fault. Clocked me at 77, but I swear I wasn't going over 55. Next person, the sign wasn't posted clearly. Person after person defending themselves, declaring their innocence. And finally, the judge called me up, and he recognized me too. So I came up front, and he said, what's your story, Pastor? And I said, well, I'm an idiot. I forgot to check the sticker, and I'm an idiot. The judge said, you're a what? I said, I'm an idiot. He looked at me and, and said, could you say that a little louder for everyone to hear? I looked at him, but he gave me this knowing look like work with me here. He said, I don't think, anybody, I don't think everybody heard you. I need you to tell me again, are you guilty? are you a guilty idiot? I said, yes, sir, I've, I've been bad, and yes, I'm guilty. He said, yes, you are, so you're forgiven. Now get out of here before you pollute all these innocent people. I tell you that story to let you and honestly myself know that when we're arrogant and full of pride, that's not a good posture for approaching God. It doesn't work because you won't actually approach Him because you don't know how badly you need Him. But if you come to God repentant and say, I've sinned, I've messed up, I'm dirty, I'm not a good person, suddenly you're open to His grace because you've adopted a posture of humility. And you realize that grace is something you desperately need. And what's amazing about our story is this. Jesus was hanging on a cross next to two guilty criminals who were both equally guilty. They both deserved death. And yet both men saw and heard the same things during those hours on the cross. Both men had the very same opportunity. Both men spoke to Jesus. Both were suffering severely. Both needed a Savior. And yet one missed it and one didn't. And I can't tell you how many people have heard the message of Jesus, whether it was presented well or poorly, they still heard the message of Jesus. And some miss it and some don't. But what's beautiful is that, that even if someone has missed it a thousand times, it's not too late for them. Even if a thousand times they've said, stupid religion, I don't need that. Or a thousand times they've said, well, I'm not a bad person, why does this matter? All it takes is one time to humble themselves and say, did mess up. I do need help. I do need grace. Listen, the second criminal deserved death. There really isn't any doubt about that. And yet, we read his question and then Jesus' answer in verses 42 and 43. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was so simple. He admitted he was wrong. He admitted he needed a Savior, and the Savior was right there. It's true for us in the same way that when we're willing to admit we're wrong, when we're willing to admit we need a Savior, the Savior is right there. The classic hymn 
The Savior is waiting has these words in it. Time after time, He has waited before, and now He is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how He wants to come in. He's right there. See, here's the thing. We are the ones who hem and haw and get in our own heads and convince ourselves that we're fine and convince ourselves that we can do it on our own and convince ourselves that we don't need a Savior. We're the ones who struggle to be humble enough to admit that our sin is real and that our sin is a problem. And all along, Jesus is there. His grace is free, and it's for all of us. It really just comes down to us, you and me. It's our decision. Just like both criminals had the same opportunity, we do as well. And just like they didn't make the same choice, we won't all make the same choice. Not too long after Jesus spoke those words to the second criminal, he breathed his last. And they took his body down off the cross and they placed it in the tomb. They sealed it and they placed guards outside of it. And on Sunday morning, some women went to prepare the body for a proper burial. And we read this amazing piece of the story in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking for the dead, among the dead, for someone who is alive? I love that. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. You know, to so many people, when Jesus died on that cross, it seemed like the end of the story. But it wasn't. Because when he died, he took all of those sins, yours and mine and everyone's, even the sins of those criminals, even the sins of the guys who were killing him. Through that cross, he paid the price for all. And when he rose from the dead, when he came out of the grave, death was defeated. Later on, as recorded in the book of Acts, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, He's addressing the crowds on the day of Pentecost, and he's telling them exactly what transpired. And I love, I love how he says this in Acts 2, beginning in verse 32. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see in here today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, the crowds were given the same choice that the criminals were given, the same choice that we have still now. To acknowledge our sin and our need for a Savior, to realize He already paid the price for our sins, and to be baptized in His name, beginning a new life with Him as the Lord and the leader of our lives. And so this morning, if you've already made that decision, then you know it's not always easy. And there are seasons where we as 
as in our, in our human way, drift away from God. And if that's you, it's a beautiful day to recommit your life to him. And if you've never actually made that decision, you've never decided to follow Jesus Christ, it's a beautiful day to make that decision as well, to commit your life to him for the first time. It's truly the most important decision that you can ever make. And we're going to sing another song together. And as we do that, we want to invite you, if you have a decision like that to make this morning, or if you just need prayer, we want to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.